Hey, alright, this is Dark Days Radio, episode number 62. I am one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by, starting at the bottom of the order, Matt. How's it going, Matt? It's going good. Hello, everyone. Alright, alright. As some of you may remember, Matt's been on the show once before, twice before? I was on the show itself once before, but I've helped you guys game a few times. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So Matt is our uh, resident werewolf expert uh, and werewolf correspondent. So, of course, as you probably will expect, we're going to be talking about a little uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse tonight. But before we get to that, I need to introduce the other two phenomenal co-hosts here on Darker Days Radio. And of course, we've got Chig. How's it going, Chig? Going great, Mike. How you doing? Hey, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. I uh, luckily recovered after uh, sleeping on your couch and being mauled by your cats. And um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good now. Company. Yeah, I'm sure they did. They were really excited that there was someone on the couch all night. And then we're joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Uh, hey, yeah, uh, pretty good. <laughs> Busy, but good. Yeah, that's what happens. That's what happens. So, uh, what kind of gaming has everyone been doing? Like, what's uh, what's been going on? Ooh, um, as everyone knows, I'm still, I'm still. It's hard to get a gaming group together right now for stuff, so I am mainly doing Toy Soldier type stuff. So um, I have one more mission left in the hybrid boxed game to play through. Um, and then it'll be going into Nemesis, uh, the expansion for that. And um, I am also digging through... I've now got all the miniatures together for uh, my Ragnarok armies, so I'm looking forward to playing some... The, the other kind of Warhammer game that was out... Well, that it was 10 years ago. That was also made by uh, Rackham. And uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, there will be a blog post up for Fading Suns by myself um, on the official Fading Suns blog. And there's an open call for people uh, related to that to um, to help out at Gen Con um, to, to, uh, to demo and, and be involved in the playtest of uh, Noble Armada 3rd Edition which, again, I am involved in. So, yeah, lots of stuff other than... Yeah, that's about... Actually, that's all, really. <laughs> Chig. And, yeah. Chig, you're going to Gen Con, man. Uh, are you going to uh, help Gen out? Con. I don't see why not. Aside from okay. I know nothing about it, aside from I now know that it exists. Chig, you could totally be a plant, all right? We'll stick you in a bunch of the games, and then you'll, you'll walk away and be like, that was the best thing ever. Everyone should buy this book. <laughs> I think that's more of a shill than a plant, but uh, oh, yes. oh my bad. Yeah, there right. is there is um a a thing where it's kind of paint one get one. So I think because uh, of course they'll need um, fleets for uh, the demo games. So it would mean that um, you could get to keep uh, a noble armada fleet if you paint them. And painting toy, painting toy soldiers, which are actually just toy spaceships, is like the yeah. easiest thing in the world. Um, hey, have them uh, send some my way. Well, there's an email up. Uh, there's a there's a link on the uh, Darker Days Facebook. Um, so uh, yeah, I will I, I'll plug that at the end because it feels feels shameless plugging it right now. Oh right, my bad. Okay. <laughs> cool. All right. <clears throat> uh, other gaming going on. Uh, Chig, Chig, listen, yeah. listen. I went down to Texas. All right. I went to PAX South. It was a good time. And on my way there, I stopped off in Dallas and we hung out. 
And in my pocket that entire time, I had two decks for Arcadia the Wild Hunt. And guess what we did not play? Well, I did not go through your pockets, so I was unaware of this. Listen, so man. this is all listen, on you. Listen. Probably should have played. I don't yeah. know. It got late. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we had tacos, so that was great. Yeah, those are good tacos, man. Those are really good tacos. Told you. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I don't know. I haven't. I guess I played like D&D once since the last episode. We haven't been doing that too much. But I'll be playing tomorrow before the Super Bowl, so that'll be good. Uh, and that's most of my tabletop gaming right there, unfortunately. Uh, Pack South, I, I double-shifted the entire thing, so I didn't really get to do anything. Well, I didn't go to Pack South, but I've been gaming. Oh, really? All right, Chig, what have you been doing? Uh, well, I say gaming. Mostly we've been doing board games because people have been out, and there were holidays, and there was a new year, and people were gone, and this, that, and the other. But we played some Arcadia Quest, which is a fun little board game. And ah. it kind of has a little evolving storyline where you, you know, it's almost RPG-ish, sort of, if you squint. I've heard oh. good things about that because um, James uh, has been playing that. And it's, it's surprisingly played, fun. He's played also um, the Super Dungeon Explore, which is also by the same company. And or not. Yeah, and he said that Arcadia Quest is better because... It doesn't take so the turns don't feel like they take as long because in the other one, you know, you move the the players and then all the monsters move. This one apparently is a bit more reactive and active. Yeah, it, so it's it's a, it's yeah. got really quick gameplay. It's that's so I mean slow setup like a lot of board games these days. But once you get into the game, yeah. it's super fun because you because each player is in control of like a, a little guild. Yeah, right? you have um, three characters that you play, and there okay. are, you know, a dozen to choose from or whatever. So you can have four players. Um, so it's not that, even co-op. No, it is. It is absolutely not. Um, in all but the most recent scenario, to win a scenario or a level or whatever you want to call it, you have to complete uh, three goals. There's only been two non-PVP goals in each scenario so far. So you have to fight each other at least once. That's good. Wicked. Nice, nice. All right, Matt. Matt, what have you been doing? I did more than that. Go ahead. Skip. Oh, fine. God, gee. God. Jig, fine. I know, Mike. I know. What else, I, I want to brag weather? because I'm, I'm having fun. Oh, um, great. I uh, got my copy of Cthulhu <laughs> Wars in from the oh. uh, Kickstarter. Nice. Yeah. Nice. It's massive. Yeah. The, uh, the minis are incredibly well sculpted and detailed. Uh, mine were not damaged, unlike some people's apparently. It is a super-duper fun game of uh, destroying the Earth and uh, feeding the inhabitants to, you know, Cthulhu monsters. So that was do super feel, fun. Do you feel compelled to paint the miniatures, or are you going to just leave Absolutely them Absolutely not. No, they, they come yeah. uh, color-coded. Yeah, exactly. So, I guess I mean, you could paint them and... I think you could, you could paint them and at least color-code the edge of the bases. Sure yeah, exactly. you could, but uh, I'm super bad at painting and also lazy, so I have no yeah. desire to paint these minis. I fear that I would just ruin the uh, gorgeous work that the sculptors have done. And okay. finally, finally, last thing, I promise, <laughs> um, I have uh, started running a uh, Star Wars Edge of the Empire game for my group. 
Wait a minute, Chig. I thought you were going to uh, do Star Wars D6. Yeah, so did I, but uh, I put it up to a vote, and the table was against me. So, <laughs> we're doing Edge of the Empire. All right, no, it's it's a good system, and uh, it is. And and even though it has the funky dice, it's surprisingly easy to pick up and figure out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if people remember, that's a uh, similar system to what uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Third Edition uses. Uh, slightly more refined based on the experiences with that game. It's got less. Is it less? It's got less little bits, you know, chits and way stuff. less. Way oh, less. that's good. As there are zero. Oh, so it's just you can the dice. Buy, like power cards and such if you want to. Oh, right. Yeah, cards are optional. Up, but uh, not necessary. Cool. Yeah. Yep, good stuff. All right, Matt. Matt, what's going on, man? Well, I've been actually playing some 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons. Nice. Lately. High five, dude. Through the internet. Well, I mean. It's okay, but we've been doing the uh, War Against the Dragon Queen adventure path. Oh, really? Which seems designed to basically murder the party as quickly as possible <laughs> without the direct intervention of the DM. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, 5th edition in general is more um, uh, dangerous than, say, 4th edition. Uh, you know, it's back to the uh, kind of 2nd edition roots where when you're first level, you really can just get beaten up by a bunch of kobolds. So, right, but good. that's not even the thing. It's like, it's not even that. It's, you know, okay, the party gets challenged to battle by a, you know, guy with five times your possible hit points and the ability to attack three times, which is something fighters don't even get till 10th level, and you're level one. Like, he can kill you in one round if he doesn't roll below a five with at least two of his attacks. Like, that is something you are supposed to take on at first level as a party. <laughs> well, you need to uh, use your, your wits and uh, wisdom to uh, defeat him. Um, and hopefully I the storyteller got... helps a lot. No, I got brought down to negative 10 hit points in one round. And then he laughed at us and, and, ran, and walked away. Well, I mean, wouldn't you laugh at him and walk away if you brought someone down to negative 10 in one attack? I mean, come on. I would. But yeah, I, I spent basically I spent most of the adventure path dead, like half dead or dying. So, no, dude, that's pretty true. I mean, when I play fifth edition, my wizard's like taking a dirt nap every single battle. Yeah, it's it's way more rocket taggy than fourth edition was because there's a lot of things that, um, like, apparently paladins are one of the better martial classes just because mm. the fact that their smite is triggered on hit and the way that crits work in 5th edition basically rewards you for having lots of dice. So you can say, oh, I crit. I'll expend my 6th level spell slot to get an extra 30, 30 d6s on this, on this damage roll. Yep, I believe it. I believe it. Cool, but uh, overall, you think the system's uh, an improvement over 4th uh, edition, 3rd edition? Um... I'd say it's an improvement over 3rd edition. I There are still some things in 4th edition that I prefer, and there's a lot of Get things in 5th edition. Get out of my house. <laughs> oh, fine. <laughs> well, no, it's like there's a lot of things in 5th edition, like it seems like they cribbed ideas from 4th edition, 
but they changed them just enough so that it punishes having that kind of role-playing muscle memory from 4th edition. Hmm. Like, the idea of there being discrete encounter powers, but the fact that a short rest in 5th edition is an hour of uninterrupted rest, whereas in 4th edition it was just, you know, oh, I guess I'll just sit around for five minutes. So there's a power that's like, you know, one of those, like, uh, clerics and paladins still have channel divinity, which is meant, which is supposed to be like a utility power you have every combat, but you don't, because now it requires you to sit around for an hour to get it back. So it's like things like that, where it's like, they definitely downgraded the power of not casters and brought nine level casters back up to the level they were in third edition. Yep. And as a person playing a wizard, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. As a person who was, who was playing a paladin, I do. Uh, unfortunate. <laughs> unfortunate. All right, cool. So anyway, this is a World of Darkness podcast. We should probably <laughs> talk about the World of Darkness. So uh, why don't we all move on over to the news segment? Okay, uh, Onyx Path has put out a couple cool things lately, so let's first talk about the Mage Fallen World Anthology, which is a uh, collection of short stories for uh, the Mage the Awakening 2nd Edition, which should be coming out uh, pretty soon. Uh, it's definitely pretty cool, and uh, it's selling very well. It's actually outselling, the, the PDF copy is outselling the uh, PDF of Planescape, the AD&D 2nd Edition campaign <laughs> setting that was just released, so I think that speaks very well for the popularity of Mage the Awakening. Uh, in addition to that, Damnation City for Vampire the Requiem is now finally in print. Uh, this is notable because it's not been in print for a long time. It's a giant book. I think it's 400-something pages. It's, a, it's quite the tome, uh, and it's kind of cool to see it finally uh, in print so people can, can get it. Uh, for a reasonable price as well. I think it's... Uh, I think it's like $35 US for a hardcover, which is, you know, not bad for a 400-page book. That's pretty cheap. Mm. Yep. And moving right along, Wraith the Oblivion 20th Anniversary Edition finally had its uh, Kickstarter, which was successful with uh, $295,000. Uh, they've got a plethora of stretch goals, uh, mostly uh, introducing uh, new short stories and sections to the uh, Book of Oblivion as well as the uh, cool character primer uh, little booklet. Uh, and t-shirts. Don't forget the t-shirts. All right, all right, Chig. We need to just... <laughs> I just ignore the t-shirts at this point. T-shirts uh, of I the could. damned. I would be curious to ask, off the record, Rich Thomas, how many t-shirts he actually sells. Because they keep pushing them. Somebody's got to be buying them. They, they must get a good deal on them at, at uh, Redbubble or wherever they're going. Or they're selling that's just a giant volume. That's, I guess that's possible. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> and speaking of Kickstarters, there's another Kickstarter going on. It's the Dark Eras Sourcebook Kickstarter. Dark Eras is a uh, new sourcebook for uh, the World of Darkness, both first and second edition material. And it's going to be uh, covering different eras of uh, history in the World of Darkness for specific game lines. 
So, for example, actually, you know what? Let's just run down the complete list because yeah. I know I know we've mentioned this on the show before, and we've just kind of given you guys like a a smattering of uh, the, the the different time periods. But let's just go through it right now. So, for Vampire the Requiem, we have uh, a Requiem for Regina, which is the Elizabethan era in uh, England. For Werewolf, we have the Bowery Dogs, which is uh, New York City in the 1970s. For Mage the Awakening, we have To the Strongest, which is the Alexander the Great period from uh, 330 to 320 BCE. For Promethean the Created, we have A Handful of Dust, which is the uh, Great Depression, and specifically the, uh, the, the Dust Bowl in the American Midwest in the uh, 1930s. For Changing the Lost, we have the Lily, Saber, and the Thorn, which is the uh, era of uh, the Age of Reason under Louis XIV, uh, which is pretty cool, and that's when they, uh, Louis XIV built uh, the Palace of Versailles. For mm-hmm. Hunter the Vigil, we have Doubting Souls, which is uh, set in the North American colonies, uh, specifically around the time of the Salem Witch Trials and the uh, Witch Scares in New England. For Geist the Seniors, we have God's Own Country, which is a uh, post-World War II look at uh, New Zealand and the uh, strife going on there at that time. Uh, for Mummy the Curse, there's Ruins of the Empire, set in uh, the uh, Victorian era and the Edwardian era uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, actually, well, it looks at both the United Kingdom and uh, the Ottoman Empire, and really just failing empires at that time. And finally, for Demon of the Descent, we have Into the Cold, which looks at East Germany uh, and the Cold War era of the 1960s. So there we go, guys. And in addition to that, they're doing something really interesting with uh, the Dark Era's Kickstarter. And Mm -hmm. people that are backing it have the option of uh, voting on specific extra sections that will be added to the book. So, for example, the uh, first poll that they had was uh, allowing people to decide between a Vampire the Requiem setting for uh, the First World's Fair in Chicago or a German uh, kind of pre-Victorian era setting uh, for Changeling the Lost centered around the time when uh, Grimm's fairy tales were uh, being put out. I think that one's the favorite right now. Oh, yeah, it's I, by I, a landslide. I, I, can't see, I can't see a way that that one would not win over <laughs> yeah, I know. the World's Fair with vampires. <laughs> I mean, it could be cool, but what I was thinking when when I cast my ballot was that, uh, you know, Chicago has gotten five different game lines looking at it. It's had, uh, obviously, Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf the Apocalypse, and then for New World of Darkness, it's had... Mm-hmm. Actually, I guess New World of Darkness has both the World of Darkness itself, as well as Vampire, Werewolf, and Mage. So we've looked at Chicago quite a bit, and I think Germany, you know, deserves a little bit of extra uh, material. Uh, Because when you look at uh, Vampire the Masquerade, we had Berlin by Night, which is not a very highly regarded source book, to say the least. Um, But, you know, it could be cool to uh, get some more Change the Lost information in general, and I think that uh, that time period will definitely uh, reflect it well. This Kickstarter is also quite interesting in that um, you can buy, you can back, and thus get the chapter that you want. So if you don't give a damn about any of the games but, say, uh, Promethean, 
you can just back five dollars and get the Promethean chapter, and that's kind of kind of good because I mean, obviously, it draws a lot of people, and I've backed for the PDF because I don't need more hard cap- hard copies, and I generally only go for hard copies of core books. Um, so uh, the whole thing is going to be great, and if it's going to get padded out with more settings, that's good. And also, something which I need to do is um, you can back, and then for an extra $15, you will get the PDF of New World of Darkness 2nd Edition when it is released later this year. So that's quite a bargain, I think. Um, oh, also, there's a New World of Darkness Dark Heroes uh, Storyteller screen, which uh, I'm sure will be nice and pretty. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of cool stuff there. <laughs> I think I think all of those settings are useful for even if you're not playing uh, that particular game line. So, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the Hunter one ties in very well with uh, the Boston setting for Mage. Uh, and, say, let's think... Um, I guess the the werewolf one for uh, the werewolf one would also be adequate for uh, maybe infor- giving you some ideas for for vampire. Oh, and also the vampire the requiem setting because it's uh, it de- deals with Tudor England and uh, the kind of like the spies at that time and um, and uh, why can't I think of its name? Uh, John D. Um, that would also be adequate as uh, material for mage. So I think there's there's a each of these chapters can be mined for any of the games. I'm actually interested in that Salem Witch Trials setting for mm. a variety of reasons, to see how they handle it, and to see if there's a faction of hunters that chops off bits of witches and grafts them onto, your, onto their body to get their powers. Because mm. I know that's a hunter faction. That is a hunter faction, yes. So it's like For a minute I was worried that was some weird uh, fetish that you have, Matt. <laughs> No, no, it's not. That's actually a thing in Hunter the Vigil, is that there's a faction That's... that does that. So it's like, it, does she weigh less than does she weigh less than a duck? Awesome! Lop off her arm. I need a new one. Hmm. Well, okay, that could be pretty then. interesting. Nice. All right. And finally, Chig, you have something that you want to bring up, something that was officially announced. It is the most important news thus far in 2015. Scheduled for fall of 2015, changing the dreaming 20th anniversary edition. It was in the uh, meeting notes five days ago, January 26th. <laughs> it's for real gonna happen. Cool. You uh, you saving up? I'm in for like 12 books. I don't care. <laughs> Whoa. Nice. I will personally fund this if I have to. At the five at the five hundred thousand dollar backer level, we have Sandjigger. It wouldn't be that much. I mean, their their goal is only forty thousand for the Dark Era's Prestige Edition book. So, I, I could take out a mortgage or something. I know. I was hmm. saying, like you funding the Second entire mortgage. Kickstarter by yourself. <laughs> nice. Okay. So that's pretty much it for uh, Onyx Path news right now. But uh, just to go take a quick look over at our friends at the uh, Midnight Express, they've been putting out quite a few episodes. Uh, Midnight Express, of course, is the classic World of Darkness podcast hosted by our friends Adrian and Steve. And they've had uh, some good stuff lately. Uh, For example, they've had Chronicle Design in the uh, old World of Darkness. 
with guest host Peter Marshall, who is our uh, Dark Days Radio Australian correspondent. Uh, in addition to that, they had a uh, episode looking at prophecy and secret knowledge in the uh, classic world of darkness with uh, our good friend Beckett. So definitely good to see him uh, hopping on to uh, some podcasts. And then, guys, this this kind of hurts. We've got two episodes talking about Mage, and guess who was on them? We had Adrian, understandable. Beckett, of course, very knowledgeable about the world of darkness. But also, Mark Hope, executive producer of Dark Days Radio. What is he doing on this podcast, guys? Are we not paying him enough? We gave him a 100% increase last year. I mean, he should be totally happy and content. Why is he two-time and going on these other uh, podcasts? <laughs> it was a really good podcast in his defense. I've yet to listen to those. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. phenomenal. With how well that one's going and with recent comments I've seen on Facebook, again, uh, I think, was it Matt McFarland saying about something about people again complaining about New World of Darkness? I feel more and more driven to sort out a uh, New World of Darkness-specific spin-off podcast. Um, I mean, I, I think we've bounced that one around for a while and it would be maybe an extra, it would be kind of nice to have that next to Darker Days and next to Midnight Express. Um Especially with all these new additions turning up. So, uh, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Yep, Lots definitely of stuff good. going on. So, if you uh, want to check out some more old and classic World of Darkness material, definitely check out the Midnight Express. Alright, team. So, I think it's time that we uh, start to tackle some more uh, stuff on this episode. And next up is Rage Across Russia. So, let's go on over to the classic World of Darkness segment. Classic World of Darkness. Wee. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> hey, Matt. Hey, Mike. Um, so remember, like a couple weeks ago, when I was like, "Hey, we should totally review Rage Across Russia. It's got to be a great book." And um, then you actually read the book. Yeah, then I actually read it. Uh, so this is gonna be uh, this is gonna be interesting, guys. This is one of those great challenges here on Dark Days Radio, where we stumble across a book that. You know, there's some cool stuff in it. It really has these glimmers of hope. But, good God, Werewolf First Edition had some very, very strange and problematic ideas, which we're definitely going to be going through. So, uh, Matt, let me let me just kind of introduce to our listeners kind of the, the setting overview of Rage Across Russia, just so they can kind of, uh, you know, see the playing field before we dig into uh, some of the good stuff and the not-so-good stuff. So, Rage Across Russia. Uh, as you'd expect, werewolves live in Russia, and they've been there for a very long time. As it turns out, this is kind of historical context, um, Russia, according to this book, is controlled by, the, uh, by vampires, essentially. In Tsarist Russia, it's the Ventru and the Toreador clan of vampires that control it. Then the Bruja Council goes and starts a revolution, and leads the people to inadvertently create the Soviet Union. It's kind of not that great. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 not that good. But the the Bruja, they keep trying to work with it. They keep uh, they keep doing things. All the while, the uh, werewolves feel as though they're very disenfranchised by the uh, the Soviet Union and its vampire overlords. Uh, they help fight in the you know, Second World War and the First World War, uh, but they don't do anything major because you know. 
White Wolf doesn't like to touch those two wars. As we fast forward through 50 years of history and environmental disaster, we get to the current meta plot, which is that uh, Michael Gorbachev is the uh, premier of uh, the Soviet Union and starts enacting all these reforms, which the Bruges Council finds uh, counter to their own plans. They soon find out that a evil uh, Nosferatu Methuselah, Baba Yaga, has uh, awoken from torpor and is now controlling Michael Gorbachev and possibly Boris Yeltsin. But Boris Yeltsin <laughs> might also be controlled by the werewolves. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. But wait, well, there's more. There's more, Matt, isn't there? <laughs> there's always well, more. For one thing, um, for the most part, between um, Kiev Rus and the era of Tsarist Russia, it was ruled by the Silver Fang and their kinfolk, and that's their major claim to fame, is that the Silver Fangs are the tribe of rulers, and of course, they are kinfolk to every single ruler of Russia right up until the October Revolution. <laughs> but then you've got all the problems with the fact that there were the, um, like, basically, like, the little city councils in all of the various areas of the Kiev Rus, and those, of course, were ruled by the Glasswalkers, and the Silver Fangs didn't like that because democracy is evil. And it just gets really confusing once the vampires get involved with it, and then communism happens and everything goes down the tubes. Exactly. But don't worry, guys. Don't worry. Communism is gone by the time we get to uh, 1993 when uh, this book was published. I and was at that time... Ask, what's can I just... Um, can, we, can we have a sport? Does Rasputin turn up in this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Rasputin turns up in You mean Rasputin, who is probably a Nosferatu, who is probably a Ventru, who is probably a Zimitsi, and who might also be a Korax Rasputin? Yes. Oh, is he he not also a Nefandi? He is all sorts of things, because every single faction seems to want to claim Rasputin. Oh, dear. Yeah, Rasputin is a 19th century Sam Hate. Yeah, pretty much. He was a he was a wraith. He was a a, a puppeteer, I believe, as well as uh, every single vampire clan, a uh, couple mm. werewolf tribes, Nefandi, and uh, I don't know, maybe a marauder. Well, basically, the problem was is that again, this is a first edition book, so everyone was trying to claim him as a member of their faction because that would give them, you know, oh, we were working, we had our fingers in this pot and we were working during this era. And, you know, the Mad King Rasputin doing something kind of, you know, oh, hey, awesome, he did a lot of stuff. We want to claim him. Hmm. Indeed, indeed. So that's kind of the historical basis um, to all of this. You know, there's a couple other things... uh, for example, the, the the time of troubles was just a pissing match between uh, vampires and werewolves. Had nothing to do with moral politics at all, and so on and so forth. But let's talk about the modern setting, the game you'd be playing in here in Ridge Across Russia, uh, as a a pack of werewolves. Well, Baba Yaga, who, as we mentioned before, is an evil vampire, uh, evil magical vampire actually, has uh, erected the Shadow Curtain which is a supernatural barrier that makes crossing into the Umbra more difficult, preventing uh, 
easy travel across moon bridges between cairns and uh cutting off the uh the werewolves and and other um beings uh from the uh, the outside world or at least making you know escape more difficult uh baba yaga of course is beginning to control uh many other vampires such as the uh, the bruja council and uh assemble him into her uh, various armies uh which she's going to use for evil purposes uh, Bob Yaga also teams up with the Black Spiral Dancers and uh, some other bad guys like the Marauders. So, of course, the werewolves and you, the players, are going to need to fight them. And that is Rage Across Russia, the 1993 White Wolf book. It's got a lot of rough edges, but Matt, I think that we can, you know, kind of sift through here and pick out some of the gems. What do you think? We can try. I'm willing to give a good go at it. Okay, all right. Do you want to cover the rough stuff first or the gems? What, what are you thinking? Uh, I think we should tr- cover the rough stuff first because right. it'll make the gems shine a little bit brighter. Okay, all right, great. So one of the things that I kind of noticed while, uh, or actually discovered while looking through this book is that it really reads like a vampire source book. I mean, most of the enemies are vampires. Uh, like half the NPCs are vampires. It, it kind of stood out. And the reason for that is actually that Rage Across Russia has its roots has its roots in a vampire source book, which is World of Darkness First Edition, which came out in 1991 or very early 1992. Uh, and it's based off of really a, maybe like a one-page section talking about Russia and specifically the rise of Baba Yaga. It seems that for some reason White Wolf decided that uh, they wanted to make a, a werewolf source book that was set in Russia and then. They had it tie in very closely to that uh, vampire metaplot that they'd begun. Um, so in that, in that first edition book, uh, in uh, World of Darkness first edition, uh, it's actually kind of interesting because it's far less um, blatant and in your face. Uh, it seems as though there's kind of just this hint that maybe uh, Michael Gorbachev was being uh, influenced perhaps, by uh, Baba Yaga, but it's nothing as overt as uh, what's described in Rage Across Russia. Uh, in addition to that, one of the other strange things about this book is that the, the meta plot is actually continued in vampire books, such as uh, World of Darkness 2nd Edition, which is essentially a vampire book, and the meta plot heavy adventure book for Vampire the Masquerade called uh, Knights of Prophecy, where Baba Yaga is... Uh, eventually defeated in that source book uh, by you and your player characters. So she's defeated in a vampire book? Yes, by vampires. But it's okay. It's okay, because the werewolves, they kind of see, like, oh, Baba Yaga's gone. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll take credit for that. Yeah, I was going to say, because World of Rage seems to paint it as a werewolf victory after she weakened herself against the vampires. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird, man. It's weird. So, uh, moving on from that, there's there's some other really bizarre stuff, especially uh, things having to do with space. So, Matt, why is why is this werewolf source book talking about space? Because the Black Spiral Dancers have a pit on Mir, the space station. Sounds legit. Sorry, say that again. Black Spiral Dancers have what? <laughs> a, a, a worm cairn on Mir, the space station. <laughs> okay. 
details can be found in Book of the Worm First Edition, which I unfortunately do not have. But... Oh, I do. Okay. Would you like to borrow it someday? It's incredibly good. <laughs> I sense some sarcasm. Well, it's so, incredible anyway. I mean, so let, let's just understand this. So let's just, just assuming that I'm completely novice on well the pockets, which I actually am. Um, how does that actually happen? How can how is how is the mere space station a a can for that is aligned to the worm? Well, in many ways, it probably can't. Um, cairns are supposed to represent points of extreme spiritual significance, and I'm pretty sure Mir wasn't in geostationary orbit, so I don't, like, it's just a thing. It's like Mir is a worm cairn, and it's a direct path to Malpheus, Lair of the Worm, and it exists. You have you have to think of it in in terms of Russia is bad because these books are printed in America. Therefore, any advancement that Russia has, such as a space station, is clearly evil and tainted somehow. Right. Yep. That's one. That's one thing that I really noticed when I was reading the book is that this came out in 1993, so it's only like one or two years since you know, the fall of the, from, since, you know, the wall came down and news started Four. coming out of Russia. So, like, there really wasn't yeah, much information. The, uh, the wall came down like, in 1989. Okay, well, Just, still, yeah, still, like, <laughs> still only 40 yeah, years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still very, very relatively recent at the time. So it was still fresh in, in the minds of Americans. And, uh, yeah, well, if you really want to, want to, like, stretch your brain a little bit about how Mir can be a worm hive or have any spiritual significance, um, one, the uh, Russian cosmonauts were clearly evil people. I mean, they put Sputnik up there to spy on America, right? I mean, the Russian space agency is clearly bad from the get-go. And two, they sent werewolves up in, in uh, you know, when they send the dogs up for the test. Those were all right, exactly. Surely. Exactly. Those were obviously tenfold. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and two, um, when you get away from the Earth, the um, barrier between worlds becomes a little bit thinner. Yeah. So sure, that's a great place to to set up your hive of scum and villainy. Well, funny thing about that. Um, apparently, some Russian cosmonauts crashed in the uh, Siberian wilderness and they were accosted by a pack of red talons because you know humans using technology getting trapped in our lands but then they decided to let them go because if humans want to leave earth or the red talons are perfectly fine with that <laughs> oh brilliant yep thank you white wolf and uh, just a couple other like weird things that are in here is uh, for example another black spiral pit is a sunken nuclear sub I don't like. When is that going to come up in a game? Like, how are you? How are your werewolves even going to get there? Are they going to have to hijack their own nuclear sub just to, you know, get down to the uh, the Arctic Ocean to uh, attack this other hive? What? Um, it's the hunt could... for Black Spiral October. Clearly, Mike. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you, could, you could get it. You could get at it from the Umbra, but okay. Here we are. I found the write up on the mirror on the mirror space station. 
in the Book of the Worm, if you want me to go over that. <laughs> I'd be, no, I, no, no, seriously, I would find it really interesting because it's, um, I, I only find it interesting because of obviously how uh, the approach that Werewolf the Forsaken takes to things coming from space and like, you know, how, how uh, the, um, the great, you know, the great spiritual entities of like the Neverborn and the, um, uh, what they call the Idigum were, th- were banished to the moon. So anything to do with werewolves and things to do with space and how it can tie in. I mean, it could be, it could be redeemable. <laughs> I don't know yet. All right. Um, here we are. In low earth, in low orbit over Earth, outside of the realm of Gaia, drifts the abandoned Soviet space station Mir. In return for favors and help from Baba Yaga, a hideous Slavic vampire, the Black Spiral Dancers have been able to establish a cairn of great power here. Puppeteer Banes possessed the last cosmonauts and forced them to enact the necessary rites, while the Banes willingly burned themselves out to provide the necessary gnosis. The Black Spirals can now travel by Moonbridge to its cold interior, there to dance their many mad revels and rites to the worm. These rites serve immense power because they are outside of the grasp of Gaia, yet still within her earthly realm. The true power of the cairn is that a moon bridge can be opened from here to the dread realm of Malpheus. This is unprecedented, as one must usually travel to an anchorhead or far column domain for this purpose. The black spirals try to keep this secret from Babiaga, for if she were to realize the potential power, she might shut it down or take it over. Right. Um, yeah, that goes completely counter to basically everything about cairns that I know ever. You can't just make one, and you can't just make a level 3 cairn out of whole cloth, which apparently this is. I believe they made it out of Possessor Spirits, Matt. Thank you, Bryce. Thank you. <laughs> I'm here for you. Alright, okay. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, it's got very... It's, it's, it's kind of a neat idea when you think about it, because... At the time, it was the largest space station there was, and it has very kind of, I guess, thematically, it kind of, it, it has that kind of Event Horizon feel to it. I mean, years before Event Horizon was a film, but I think you can still, you could still use it, but it's just like, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? Like, you know, your group of werewolf you know, player characters have to go via Moonbridge to the Mir space station. It's like, wow, that's a pretty big event. Um, yeah. Well, no, and, and, like, and another Black Spiral Cairn in Russia is the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. Are you sure this, is, this book isn't actually Wealth, the Apocalypse, the Dark Side of the Moon? Because I'm sure this is a Transformers film. Um <laughs> No, but apparently, like, the Black Spiral Dancers are also, like, since since there was a success at the Mir space station, they're trying to take over Russia's space program. Of course. Yeah, sounds legit. <laughs> no, there's definitely a couple of times where I had to uh, just go back, like, check the cover and make sure that this was not a Rift's source book, because it's uh, <laughs> pretty out there. But, okay, um... What else do we have here, Matt? What other kind of strange things were there? Of course, this is a very early uh, setting book for uh, The World of Darkness, so it of course includes that travel guide section, which is ultimately four pages of uselessness. Uh, 
I didn't really, I mean, I already assumed that uh, there were hotels in Russia. I didn't really need a, uh, a section telling me that, yes, they exist. Or uh, some very annoying uh, charts on pronunciation trying to tell me how to correctly pronounce uh, Mikhail Gorochev. Is that good enough for you, Chig? Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> okay. That's pretty good. I mean, I, I don't mind that too much with pronunciation. I think that can sometimes help with the immersion. The whole thing, like, yeah, Russia has hotels. What else is in this travel guide? Like, what else is there? Russia has running water also. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think the problem isn't so much that it's a travel guide. It's a very... It's a very, like, patronizing travel guide. He says it's only four pages, and most of that time is spent going over the many eco-disasters that Russia has partaken of in the past 50 years. That's pretty shitty. That's really... That's a bit mean, really, given... I mean, if you could do it, you could do a travel guide of like New York, and you could go, "Hey, you know, let's just talk about a certain power stations melting down, or something like that." Or, yeah, except <laughs> the uh, the background that Russia is a is a horrible, horrible place to live if you're a werewolf, and it's full of evil people. Yeah, it fits the narrative, if not, you know, reality. No. Well, yes and no. Like, this was back in first edition when this was the gothic punk world. Yeah, it's and... a bit... It's a bit slay industries. <laughs> Tad bit, yeah. Like, this yeah. is supposed to be darker and edgier than the real world of darkness. Yeah. Cool, anyway, um, moving on from Mir and how uh, Russia is a complete desolate hellhole filled with vampires. Um what's next well i mean i think we kind of expended a lot of the really bad stuff right there uh, i'm sure there's some well actually actually matt you could probably talk about some of the peculiar uh politics of the tribes since you were reviewing that just before the show right um well mo mainly the fact is that like in first edition werewolf a lot of the writers were still coming off of vampire and so even though the tribes were supposed to be nominally aligned there's a lot of backstabbing and infighting between them and a lot of political machinations such to the point that the red talons the tribe made entirely of wolfborns is a major political power in the guru nation of russia and like there's a lot of things that just don't really make sense like the children of gaia the tribe of peace-loving nature people are actually trying to assassinate most of the Red Talon leadership. The Red Talons are working to try and get the Impergium started, started up again, which is, you know, the systematic murder of most of humanity. And the rest of the Guru are basically okay with that, except for the Glasswalkers, when that's not really the case at, at all. It's just... There's all sorts of things that basically make them sound more like... or vampires that dress up like wolves rather than werewolves. Right, right, right. And uh, plus, Matt, what happened to the Glasswalkers? Weren't they exiled? No, the the children of Gaia were exiled. Because, oh, my bad. Because they allowed the Russians to detonate nuclear weapons. <laughs> they, they, apparently, they and they alone were supposed to stop that. And because they failed to, the Red Talons slaughtered most of their tribe and drove them out of Russia. 
Yeah, okay. All right. Okay, guys. Okay, let's... We, we started at the bottom, guys. We started at the bottom, but it's going to get better now. Let's move on to some of the more kind of interesting, notable things about the book. Maybe not good, maybe not bad, but just kind of cool things that I noticed while going through here. Uh, I think the first one to go over is actually this this very small section at the, the end of the tribe politics in that chapter, uh, which is actually this sort of a sub-tribe, a mixture of the uh, Wendigo and the Silver Fangs, called the uh, Sibarak. There's not much detail given on them. They're kind of just this uh, this almost footnote in the book. But there's a couple of cool story ideas. Um, essentially, there were a group of silver fangs that noticed that the uh, you know, the pure breed practices of their tribe was uh, causing this, this madness uh, to occur. And to uh, sort of help themselves out, uh, they began to uh, basically join into the, uh, the Wendigo tribes in uh, Siberia and sort of start their own cadet branch. Um, the cool idea here is that there's this theory going on between a couple of the other tribes that know about them uh, that these guys actually might be uh, better leaders than the Silver Fangs and may be able to uh, redeem the, uh, the leadership of that tribe in uh, the region of Russia, uh, simply because the uh, Silver Fangs have really lost all of their power and are kind of just flailing uh, at this point, politically. Particularly in first edition. Indeed, indeed. So it is kind of a cool idea. The only problematic thing about it is that they have this vibe that uh, since they've kind of gone back to nature, they're therefore more, more pure and uh, are, are there for a, a better culture, which is sort of this um, uh, unfortunate revisionist thing that we get a lot in uh, Werewolf first edition. So I think if you kind of... Uh, modify the idea of this and make it that since the Sibarak are uh, more, say, less political and more uh, military leaders, they might be of much more benefit to uh, the werewolf tribes in Russia. And that's why these other uh, competing factions actually want to increase their power and make them uh, kind of uh, stake their own claim in the, uh, the political sphere of the Guru nation uh, in this region. I think that could be kind of a, a cool story to play, uh, taking this uh, cadet branch, as I mentioned, and uh, making them the, uh, the the new claimants to the throne, essentially. I also like the idea that that there can be sub-tribes. You don't, mm. I mean, it, it's always pointed out that, you know, not every werewolf claims his parents' tribe or whatever. And, yeah. I mean, there's always the ronin. But uh, aside from the Cyberrock and the... Um, not the Skinners, but, uh, well, maybe we're the Skinners. Uh, it's never shown that there are beyond the 13 original tribes. There's no, there's no real organization outside of that. I like the Sibarak as well because they're kind of cool, but like you said, there is that slight problem of them being closer to nature. And there's also the problem that since they're the descendants of the Silver Fangs and the Wendigo, that sort of makes them magical Native Americans, which is in itself a problem that White Wolf had in first edition. Hmm, yeah. Except for they're not really in America. But yeah, I see I see your point, yeah. Well, they, yeah, it's like, because supposedly this, like, they were formed back before the before ice Before the bridge. land bridge, right. Right. Yeah. And so they've been, you know, hiding out in the wilds of Siberia for the past 
you know, 2,000 plus years. Sure. Sounds right. Sounds right. Yeah. And no one's really seen them or heard anything of them. Yeah. So moving on from the Sibirak, uh, let's talk about Baba Yaga a little bit. Um, you know, we mentioned the history and all that in the background and how kind of convoluted and contrived and ridiculous it is. But Baba Yaga as a character is actually somewhat interesting. Um, for example, she's actually a Humanity Zero NPC, a Humanity Zero vampire, which you don't see that many of uh, in, in Vampire the Masquerade books. And despite being Humanity Zero, which means you're uh, completely inhuman and uh, usually they're, they're considered these uh, whites, um, which mostly just uh, wake up, feed, and hunt and have uh, lost all of their uh, almost sentience. Uh, Babiaga seems to really be quite in control. I mean, she's got these uh, uh, maddening uh, machinations and uh, these crazy magical spells that she can cast and summons dragons and all this other stuff. Um, so she is quite interesting in that regard. The only problem is, and I think this is because uh, this is a, a werewolf book, so they wanted to make a very overt enemy for the uh, guru to oppose. Uh, she's written as having these different armies. The, uh, the armies of the void, night, conversion, war, arcane, and despair. So, how exactly you're supposed to portray these in a game, I'm not sure, and the uh, the book does not really explain it very well. Uh, are your, are your, uh, your werewolves, I should say, supposed to have these back alley brawls against uh, these masses of uh, of puppeted uh, vampires and uh, and ghouls, or is it something that's supposed to be more subtle? Where, uh, despite being called these different armies, they're more in control of uh, uh, specific corporations, let's say, uh, making them a sort of shoo-in for Pentex in the uh, Ridge Across Russia setting. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have any ideas on how maybe this could be used? I'll take that as a yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> she's, uh, she's just, she's got, you know, she's the big bad. She's the, the final boss of this, of this video game source book. Well, she's the final boss, but they gave her stats, but not health levels. So it's like, you're not really supposed to interact with her on any meaningful level. In fact, most of the generals of armies don't have health levels. Only the uh, army of the void has guys given wound levels that can actually, are supposed to be attacked, apparently. Well, she should have seven health levels like any other person, right? Yeah, she's, she, she's not like, you know, a big giant monster. I mean, she's a monster. But she's not, you know, in, in well, I mean, she's an inhuman monster. But yeah, she's not like, well, like, like you know, a dragon or like, anything. True, like nothing. Like I'm thinking, like you know, somebody who's supposed to be like that big bad should have more health levels because if not, then somebody gets a lucky crit and she is dead. But mm. I don't well, know. I mean, I mean, she, she did. She did die in two thousand. So yes. Wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let me consult uh, World of Darkness First Edition and see if there's uh, any health levels given to her in there. Baba Yaga, Humanity Zero, Willpower Ten. Now, That's is she done. Humanity Zero because they had only just recently come out with uh, Paths of Enlightenment? Oh, uh, they had well, not come out with it. Or yeah, I guess they had just published them. Yeah, they, um, they came out has... in '92. Yeah, but, but she's 
it doesn't look like she's on a path though, but she has she has conscious zero, self control two, and courage four. Well, there you go. Find the paths that have conscious self control and courage, and pick one for her. Yep, definitely. Um, so. Yeah, sorry, just looking through, uh, yeah, none of these NPCs in World of Darkness 1st Edition have any health levels listed, because I think you're just supposed to assume that they have seven health levels, as any normal mortal being. But, anyway. Right, I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm just looking at this from the viewpoint of a werewolf player, where if you've got a single enemy that's supposed to be taken on by a pack, if they don't have more than seven health levels, they're going to last a single round at best. Well, she has plot immunity. Right. <laughs> Look at this amazing NPC that someone else is going to kill in a book you'll have to buy. In, you know, seven years or so, yeah. Yeah. Indeed. But speaking of omnipotent beings that don't have any health levels, let's also talk about the Zemi dragons. Matt, what's your opinion of these? There's like five pages dedicated to them. And they're uh, they're they're pretty ridiculous. Well, the Zmei, I think, are interesting, but the thing is, like, they're basically just plot devices. Like, you you won't be able to kill them. You're just supposed to bind them. Like, I suppose you could kill them, but they're the claws of the they're plus like the claws of the worm. They like, yes, you can kill them. Congratulations, you've severely weakened uh, Baba Yaga, but good luck actually accomplishing that feat. Yeah, understood. So uh, the Zumi dragons are are kind of this interesting uh, plot point in the book, where Baba Yaga, being a big evil sorceress, has summoned dragons, which you can now fight. Uh, the only thing is that, unfortunately, in the past... Um, when the Gru were even stronger and more uh, better organized, uh, they did challenge, uh, them and many uh, kinfolk challenged these Zemi dragons, and unfortunately, they killed one, but were uh, unable to defeat any of the others. Uh, it was only by using this binding ritual that they were able to uh, suppress them. And of course, in the context of Rage Across Russia, Baba Yaga's back, and she's now uh, awakening uh, her uh, remaining dragons. Uh, so it does provide this kind of a interesting giant enemy for uh, your werewolves to uh, battle, perhaps one that they cannot defeat through uh, just fang and claw. Uh, but I'm a little bit at a loss to figure out what you're supposed to do with them, because you can't really have a giant dragon. I mean, you could have a giant dragon flying over Moscow, but it's really uh, a counter to the, uh, the themes and mood that uh, many World of Darkness games have. Uh, so that's really uh, the only issue I see with them is that while they're sort of uh, an interesting uh, mythical creature for your uh, characters to stand against, uh, you're going to have to do it out in the, the wastelands of Siberia or something like that, where it's not going to have too many prying eyes. You're going to bring this domain and not talk about Tunguska? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the Tunguska blast was where a great mage actually fought one of his mage to a standstill. And then, like, an Octena came in afterwards and rebound it. Well, that was awful nice of them. Mm. Yeah. It, it's just like a sidebar in the history chapter. It's like, oh, by the way, Tunguska happened in here somewhere. Pretty ridiculous. 
Uh, the only other thing to note is that Durga Sin is in here, and she is an NPC in the Giovanni Chronicles. Just a little fun fact right there. Okay, Matt. All right. Let's get to the good stuff. Because you know what? There are some cool ideas in this source book. It was worth it to read this book for the, the, the comical nature of the bad stuff, but also these couple of gems. So, let's review, of course. As we mentioned before, earlier, Babiaka uh, erected the Shadow Curtain, uh, which is this uh, sort of supernatural barrier which uh, uh, strengthens the gauntlet at many locations and uh, really severely affects the cairns of uh, many of the Guru and uh, prevents travel of mages and others uh, through the Umbra and uh, makes, makes spellcasting, let's say, and interaction with spirits much more difficult. This is actually a pretty interesting idea. Uh, it's, a, it's a cool kind of uh, foil. You know, the uh, Iron Curtain has fell, but now the Shadow Curtain has been erected, which still cuts off these uh, uh, supernatural creatures from uh, the other cultures across the world uh, and really just keeps up their isolation. It's also uh, kind of a cool catastrophe uh, that you can have in your game uh, maybe not in Russia, but you could even set this in uh, a local city uh, of your game, uh, which does not affect the mortal world uh, overtly, but still uh, is a, an issue, uh, an environmental issue that your characters have to face. Uh, it can also, the, the idea of the Shadow Curtain really could uh, uh, affect many spirits, and uh, in the context of uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse or Werewolf the Forsaken, uh, could throw them into turmoil, which uh, causes a lot of issues, uh, minor issues, really, that the uh, uh, player characters will need to resolve. Well, um, Mike, it actually does say in here that um, the spirits aren't hampered at all, and in fact, the, as long as the Shadow Curtain exists, spirits can manifest in the real world. Uh, uh, do, you, do you hear this facepalm just happening right here? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, um, they can manifest in the real world. Great. Uh, that's that's well, that's good. Yeah, and it's that's kind of dumb, but it also could be kind of interesting in a sense that, like, you know, you could have a werewolf chronicle where a bane has forced its forced its way through, and is like, you know, act, like killing people to drain their essence, and the werewolves have to hunt him down and stop it. And then it's like, you know, holy crap, there's a spirit in the real world. What the hell is this doing here? So you're saying there could be Soviet werewolf ghostbusters? Is that what I'm hearing? Because yeah. that's what I think I'm hearing. That is exactly what you're hearing. That is exactly what I said, Bryce. Okay. All right. So no, we're getting a good idea here. All right. So, Chig, <laughs> your, uh, your cleaners from uh, our ideas for the, uh, the Void Engineers could definitely go to Soviet mm -hmm. Russia. Absolutely, they could and should. Because unless I'm mistaken, the... Uh, Shadow Curtain stayed up for, I don't know, until Baba Yaga got killed, right? Well, but Baba Yaga woke up in 1990, so after Soviet Russia, technically. Just, you can, you can, sure. you can modify it for your own game. It, it came up in about 92 and lasted until she died in 2000. Oh, so that's and, not very long. That's not long enough for, like, you know, horrible dragons to start walking the earth or anything fun like that. We I mean, no, they're they're laying there under the under the earth apparently these uh, sleeping zmai. So, hmm? were any of the zmai made out of marshmallow? No. <laughs> well, there goes my campaign idea. I'm out. All right, sorry, man. 
And uh, there's actually another cool idea in Rage Across Russia, which is this idea that different cairns are actually being depleted of their energy and their access to the umbral world. So um, really, their, their cairn rating is decreasing over time. Uh, this is frightening for the, uh, for the guru, and it's again a sort of a supernatural catastrophe, which does not really affect the mortal world. Uh, you don't need to make it as overt as saying that, oh, Baba Yaga is causing this. You need to kind of keep it a mystery, in my opinion. Uh, it could be other guru. It could be uh, caused by mages. And really, if you want to have sort of a, a globe, tr not really globe trying, but region trotting uh, uh, crossover chronicle, you could provide a lot of uh, interesting investigation ideas for a Werewolf the Apocalypse game as your player characters look around and try to figure out exactly what's going on and what's affecting all of these different cairns. And of course, if there's a couple cairns that are not affected by it, then, well, maybe they're going to start pointing fingers at those ones. In addition to that, uh, there's another kind of cool idea which is hinted at, but uh, the source book unfortunately does not go into too much. And that's discussing the different cultural conflicts amongst the Get of Fenris in this region. Uh, so, of course, you have uh, the Get of Fenris from different uh, cultural um, and anthropological uh, origins. So the, uh, the Germanic ones, the more Slavic Get, and then the uh, Finno-Ugric uh, from the north. And they're all now living in the same region. Uh, even some Get of Fenris that came in uh, following the uh, German invasion and the, uh, the Second World War. And their uh, different uh, stances and uh, politics really put them into conflict, which can cause some very interesting infighting within that specific tribe and uh, issues that uh, perhaps other tribes are going to uh, use um, in their own sort of political struggles in the region. No, I like that too. I mean, it's nice to see the Get of Fenris actually get some nuance to them beyond, you know, being the super strong Germanic fight tribe. Because, like, because they there really is a lot of a lot of interesting history to to the tribe and to Germans and, like you said, the Finno-Ugric, the Slavic, all those things, all those you know cultures are a part of the Get of Fenris, and then they all get shoved into Russia at once. Right, right. So, uh, I think that's uh, most of what I've got here for good things. Uh, Matt, what do you have? Got any uh, other things that really stood out to you as kind of cool ideas to uh, throw into your game? The concept of Baba Yaga as a big evil entity itself is somewhat interesting because, like, you just have the guru in Soviet Russia, like, you know, the Berlin Wall comes down, things are getting better, everything's going great, all of a sudden... And it's not really a, a, it wasn't really a sudden thing. It's just ever so slowly the shadow curtain came down. They couldn't get get outside of Russia's penumbra, and I don't. And a lot of them aren't even really aware that Baba Yaga exists beyond like the rumors of there being this beast in the night that is causing all of these horrible things. And the Zemei start walking around, and I think that that is a very interesting setting. It's just that everything they did to get to that point was not that great. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. Um, and and you know, we, we shouldn't really short sell the, uh, the the book itself in that regard. There is a uh, kind of interesting um, setting that's been created. Uh, one of the cool things is that uh, because, and the book blames communism, which is kind of funny, um, 
because Russia was uh, somewhat isolated from the uh, growth of, of Western culture, uh, Pentex doesn't really exist in uh, Rage Across Russia, which is uh, kind of a cool difference uh, from in many other werewolf games. Um, you, of course, can find now uh, in the time period that this book was written, you know, there's some uh, kind of like satellite uh, entities for Pentex that have begun uh, springing up or that have been uh, bought out by Pentex. But for the most part, that's not uh, too big of a deal in this setting, uh, which is, you know, kind of a cool and uh, different thing you can do. That gives an interesting plot point then with the, you know, the fall of communism and everything to deal with how Pentex, you know, starts to infiltrate the uh, the new capitalism, uh, you know, capitalist-run economy of uh, this new Russia. That'd be quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, if they'd waited a couple more years before releasing this book, they really could have highlighted that and uh, jumped into it. Uh, one of the unfortunate things, and they actually have a sidebar discussing this, is that, you know, there's a lot of crazy, um, uh, very unstable political situation in Russia at the time that they're actually writing this book. Like, I'm pretty sure they stopped the presses just to add in a couple lines about uh, Boris Yeltsin uh, shelling and sieging parliament to the book before it was uh, finally printed. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of things going on, and this might not have been the best time to... Uh, you know, try to write a uh, uh, present-day Russia book. But cool, there we go. Rage Across Russia. That was a uh, quite a journey, uh, <laughs> reading through that book and uh, reviewing it here. Um, I understand that, there, you know, there's a little bit of negativity with it overall, uh, but I think we did uh, definitely highlight some really cool stuff that you can use and some cool ideas. And um, yeah, I definitely recommend that if you have this book or uh, want to pick it up, um, just kind of... You don't really need to read through everything, uh, but there's some cool stuff that we highlighted that uh, could definitely be a benefit for Werewolf the Apocalypse games. So, with that, I think it's time to move on over to The Secret Frequency. It was in 1919, the height of the Bolshevik Revolution, that Lieutenant Fedor Oturovich Isenbach and his Russian White Army unit looted the old Kurikin's mansion near the modern-day Kharkiv. Amongst the centuries-old art and Slavic cultural pieces, Isenbach uh, discovered a series of carved wooden planks joined by rope. It was a strange cultural piece, inscribed with, to him, illegible early Cyrillic text. Though rotten and warped with age, Isenbach took the planks, intent on keeping his soldiers from burning them as firewood. After the defeat of the White Army, Isenbach fled to Belgrade in 1923, where he attempted to sell the planks to the Belgrade Library Museum. The museum, of course, was uninterested in these planks, and writing they couldn't understand. In 1925, Isenbach settled in Brussels and began to translate the planks with his friend, Yuri Murilyabov. The inscribed writing was inconsistent. Different letters, uh, grammar patterns, and sizes of the text indicated numerous writers. Stranger still, the grammar indicated writings of different regions, Polish phrases, Serbian anecdotes, precise references to the Eurasian steppes. These planks must have traveled throughout Eastern Europe. The translation itself took them 15 years to photograph and transcribe. 
The rough translation revealed part historical chronicle, part religious text. The assembled translated book, dubbed the Book of Valets, after its opening sentence on the 16th plank, remains one of the only written accounts of Slavic prehistory before the Varangian rule, and the only text describing pagan Slavonic pantheon in detail. Before Isenbach could publish his findings, though, he was killed in the 1941 German siege of Brussels, and the original planks were lost. It was not until 1957 that Professor A. A. Kurenkov published an English translation of Merlebov's transcriptions in the Firebird magazine. The work was met instantly with disdain by academics. Soviet linguists called it a forgery, citing the uh, varied regional linguistic patterns. Soviet historians attacked the book for supporting the Norman Varangian migration theory, as opposed to the latest anti-European Kurgan theory that they've been developing. In our world, the Book of Valais was ultimately uh, become a work read only by the curious and pagan spiritualists. However, in the world of darkness, that needn't be entirely the case. The Book of Valais, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and maybe even the Book of Mormon, and similar texts can be, uh, provide a number of story ideas uh, for your game. A common trope in Mage the Awakening is uh, forgotten grimoires and false histories. Uh, however, rather than uh, being a book from an alternate Earth history, perhaps someone is trying to rewrite the history of Earth, beginning with the Book of Valais. And for what purpose? Perhaps the Seers of the Throne wish for a world where fewer cultural differences exist between Western and Eastern Europe, a world with no Cold War and a world government they could easily influence. In addition to being an infantry officer, uh, Fedor Isenbach uh, was also a well-known painter. Uh, perhaps the Book of Valais is in fact a forgery, but one based on the inspiration of his changeling muse. A troll might inspire him with true tales of his Slavic ancestors, a history he sought to capture on these wooden planks. This glamour-infused work of art has now been lost following the capture of Brussels, uh, but perhaps your motley of changelings uh, need to recover the planks and harness its glamour to save another soul. But by doing so, they destroy the entire history of a people. In Dark Ages Fae, the Book of Valais might actually record numerous contracts between inhuman trueborn Fae of Eastern Europe and the mortal populace. Perhaps recovering the, pan the planks will allow the player characters to find a weakness in their opponents, the summer fey Perun, whom the Slavic populace worship as a god of thunder. Whew. So what do you guys think? Any other ideas about the uh, Book of Valais? Nope? Alright, I can give you guys another idea. Uh, so, yeah. um, even just from like a practical standpoint, wooden planks are going to last longer than paper. So this can just give you a general idea of uh, a way that your perhaps Mage the Ascension characters could stumble across some interesting rotes and uh, magical materials and, and alchemical uh, information from the times of Dark Ages Mage. Maybe. Uh, you say it's uh, written in Cyrillic, right? Correct. That? Yep. Okay, that, that uh, means that at the oldest, it's uh, 1100 and... 75 years uh, Cyrillic didn't exist before 940 or so when uh, Cyril went to Russia to uh, spread the orthodoxy Correct. Um, so it can't, it can't I, mean, I mean sure it could be written down stuff that was 
oral tradition for thousands and thousands of years, but uh, at best the uh, the wood itself is, you know, can't predate that. So it can't be, you know, some primordial book handed down from the creator of Russia, him or herself. Um, I do like your idea of it being um, literal fairy tales <laughs> from uh, from changelings trying to uh, inspire or save people. Though that's that's a fun one. I like that. Yeah, I thought you might like it, Chig. So, from a werewolf point of view, there is a lot of stuff touched on in Rage Across Russia about trying to restore humanity to a more kind of nature worship and, you know, worshipping Gaia and the moon, and so maybe it doesn't look like Cyrillic because a werewolf drew it, like, clawing into the wood, trying to create this false text of or true text, depending on, you know, the way that the religion should be, as opposed to the way that it is now. Yep, absolutely. Uh, there's definitely a lot of stuff you can do with uh, werewolves in general, and uh, you know, Chig, mirroring your, your point about uh, the time period in which the Cyrillic text was introduced, um, I don't know, time travel? Time travel, Chig? Oh, sure. Yeah, sure, absolutely. It, it uh, It's uh, clearly been dropped off by a, um, a uh, whatchamacallit, a verbena neo-pagan master <laughs> or mistress of the time sphere. Uh, who went back to uh, convert people to the one true religion. Tr trying um, to create a entire country of sleepers for themselves? Absolutely. If everybody has this as the, the background radiation of their belief, then that makes the Verbena and uh, possibly the Dream Speakers uh, that much more coincidental in their magic. I was going to suggest that uh, because of the date of it and the nature of it, um, you could obviously tie it in with, um, with uh, I think there's a particular bloodline, I'm just going to look, um, within the Autodrakal. So you could possibly, with the region it's in and to do with Sla uh, you know, the Slavic area, um, I'm just trying to think which bloodline it is. Is it them? Uh, but so, you know, because of where it's dated, it's before the the, the true rise of the Auto Drakal, but it could, uh, its uh, religious influence could be uh, still felt within that covenant. Um, there is a particular Auto Drakal um, bloodline which is more. There we go. Oh, it sounds. I mean, I'm not. I'm not the, uh, the Vedma. Uh, so hold on. the oh, not not the Vedma. The Simanu, uh, who are a order of um, kind of an offshoot of the Lancaster Sanctum, but within uh, the Order Dracul. And um, they're a bloodline back when Dracula was mortal. So this book could well be uh, considered a religious text for that order. And perhaps contain uh, contain um, Thaban sorcery, which uh, is not known to the larger Lancare Sanctum uh, Covenant, but is actually practiced within the Ordo Dracul. Do you do you really think that uh, Ordo Dracul is the best fit? It, I mean, it sounds almost um, uh, what's the uh, the Circle of the Crone? 
Um, well... Does it say if, if Veles is a, a male name or a female name? I'm not good on my, uh, my Russian gender. No, name. it's just... It says to Velez, this book we devote. Velez apparently is a god. Oh, uh, well, right. probably... Probably not Circle of the Crown, then. Well... Well, remember, the Circle of Cronids is not... They're not Wiccans and they're not any particular thing. They're, they're vampires that uh, create modern cults and cobble stuff together. Uh, there is no ancient cult. I mean, it's based upon the idea of the, the idea that there's this ongoing secret society that's this witch cult. Um, so you can obviously use this as the source of particular cults in that region that they use it as their own kind of, uh, you know, reference text. Uh, and and while it, if it's a male god, that doesn't mean it can't still be used within their particular flavor of, uh, of the uh, Circle of the Chrome. Hmm. I thought, uh, I thought they were a real witch cult thing. Shows what I know. <laughs> as long as you don't want to read too much into it, because apparently Velez was... A might have been a Nordic corruption of Priapus. Oh yeah. Uh, who's Priapus? The um, god of uh, boners. Yeah, the, the god. Of, he, he had a perpetual. No, a really. That's why it's called Priapism. Erection. Yeah, he had a perpetual massive erection. Like he had to have <laughs> a scaffolding built to hold it. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Yeah. Probably should have researched yeah. that before doing this secret frequency. <laughs> well, I was playing around with some ideas <clears throat> as I was reading this, but I couldn't really figure out how to how to get it to work. And uh, in Hunter of the Reckoning, uh, especially in the core book, there's these kind of ideas that maybe the uh, hunters, uh, the imbued, I should say, are actually kind of the uh, modern-day uh, incarnations of the, the old mythic heroes. And I was having a lot of trouble uh, figuring out how to actually get this to link up. But now I'm actually speaking about this. I got some ideas. The uh, Rage Girls Russia actually has this kind of cool side idea about the uh, the Borgatiers. Uh, they're, they're the heroic knights of uh, Prince Vladimir Rurikid. And, uh, well, those guys are actually were the more Nordic uh, Varangians. But we'll just go with it. We'll just go with it, guys. And it could be that uh, this Book of Allays is a, a way to link the uh, modern-day imbued to such mythic figures as those Borgatiers in the Slavic regions, or perhaps in uh, the United Kingdom of the British Isles, link them to King Arthur and the uh, Knights of the Round Table, or uh, other mythic figures of, uh, of different mm. regions, like, I don't know, Asterix and Ubelix in, uh, in France. Ah, I had an idea. Just looking at over this front. So, Velaise is also uh, potentially a. So, I'm actually just looking at the wiki uh, now. Um, a god of the underworld and of death. So, what is? What if this is? It is purely. It's. It's not quite a forgery, but it is a constructed religion. So, what if it's a uh, a ghost uh, uh, from Geistenitis? What if it's a cruise uh, mythology? Oh. Uh, that yeah, yeah, that's a great idea for this, and that could explain why it's sort of just hobbled together over the years. It's been uh, something that they grew and developed as uh, as they lived throughout the time. 
it also explains why Velez is also related. I mean, I'm just looking over this. There's some connotations with carnival and Halloween, so that's kind of like the the Geist flesh fairs. Um, God of magic and musicians, tricks to gods. Yeah, okay. God of cattle and wealth. Um, the other thing I was going to go with humorous, going back to the uh, the uh, phallus uh, <laughs> imagery. Uh, what if it's a, a, a weird uh, book that um, basically Velez or this 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 imagery I will just say is actually related to the Thyrsus Watchtower in Mage the Awakening. So they're literally relating this god and the phallic imagery to one of the watchtowers in the uh, in the supernal uh, realm of uh, of uh, spirits and beasts. <laughs> Interesting. I like it. I like it. <laughs> All right, cool. So is that it for this uh, secret frequency? Yeah, I think that may well be it. <laughs> All right, excellent. So with that, let's move on over to the new World of Darkness. World of Darkness 2.0. So we're covering in this segment, we're going to be discussing uh, what Dave Brookshaw and uh, obviously his fellow writers have been... Um, have been spoiling for us in the uh, open development uh, blog for Mage the Awakening. So Mage the Awakening, of course, uh, is the third New World of Darkness game. It is about playing mages. Um, in many respects, Mage the Awakening uh, is about mages having awoken to magic, looking to ascend. Uh, so in that respect, it's more about trying to ascend and about ascension, whereas it, because they're really performing magic and there is no, you don't really have, there isn't a thing like paradigm in this game. So compared to Mage the Ascension, Mage the Ascension is really about awakening from your paradigm to just use magic in all its, all its glory. So um, there's a lot of stuff on the blog that covers uh, spoiler, well, spoilers and samples. So they look at each of the paths. Uh, some of the paths have been altered. They've also adjusted some of the rules. Obviously, they're making use of the new God Machine rules. Um, and certain things have been revised. And, of course, in the, the, the uh, publishing history of Mage the Awakening, um, certain things have been revised. I think some of the later books like um, Imperial Mysteries and books like Sears of the Throne and so forth. Some of the books that came later in the line really did retcon uh, quite a number of things, such as Atlantis. So uh, where can we... Um, where do we begin? Um, I think the thing that... The big thing is, maybe, there's a few things they're now putting quite front and centre with this. So... The mages of Mage of the Awakening, at least the player character mages generally, will be members of one of the four orders and a fifth order, which is a modern order. Um, and the focus of Mage of the Awakening uh, politically has changed a bit. So they're they're making they're making the orders seem more prominent and they've downplayed the concilium the concilium so the concilium is basically a gathering of mages uh which uh they've kind of now placed firmly as being kind of more like a a, a, 
kind of a, a judicial kind of uh, organization for a particular region, while it's the orders themselves which will be, you know, dishing out commands to to novice mages and in charge of their training, depending upon which order uh, your character has aligned to. Um, obviously, as I said, the, the myth of Atlantis is now firmly more of a myth. Uh, it is a, a name, it is a symbol, it is not a real place. And in fact, there may well have been many different Atlantises in the, in the world before time, uh, before the fall. And of course, one thing that they're really upfront about, which was made clear in uh, the Seas of the Throne book and Imperial Mysteries, is the very nature of the abyss. So in the Mage Core book, they made the whole thing that mages try to ascend from our world, not only from our world, but like from the world, to ascend to the the thrones of of magic and reality, the supernal realms, and control them, and thus control reality. And in doing so, the the, the celestial ladder that allowed them to do that cracked, shattered, and created the abyss. Yeah, that's basically that's been retconned. That was retconned in the Sis throne book anyway. And the fact is, this war between mages Sidica and the, the the winners of the war. Uh, the 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 exarchs, uh, they created the abyss as a way to control the world because they gain power from fallen from the people that exist within the fallen world. So uh, the abyss is is very much a means of control, and I think that's a very important uh, thing to play up in the second edition because it really pushes forward how the exarchs and thus their servants in the fallen world, the seers of the throne, are distinctly not the technocracy. They really aren't. Um, uh, Mike, you had some initial comments, and then I guess we can, and anyone else have any questions, and we can maybe look at some of the more interesting posts, uh, interesting blog posts uh, in the Mage the Awakening development. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, we can just... Uh... Just to set the scene a little bit and kind of, yeah. you know, get people into the mood of what they're doing with Mage 2nd Edition here, uh, I think it would be really good to just kind of um, actually just read directly what uh, Dave Brookshaw said about the lie, because that's really the central tenet of this yes. entire setting and everything that's going on with, with, you know, the people, with the characters that you're interacting with and that you're playing as. Okay, well, I'll, I'll read through that because I, cause I, I, that was the last thing I commented on. So, um, so we delve into that now, and then uh, we can pick up some other points after that. Sure, this sure. really is the crux of the setting, and I think really drives home how the Seers of the Throne and the Exarchs are all a shower of bastards. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the lie is central to um, all the people that are living in the fallen world. And that yeah. are basically imprisoned there, that are caged there. And they're caged there, not not physically per se, but really uh, emotionally and, and mentally. Spiritually um, as well. Spiritually, yes. Uh, and, and that's that's due to this this aspect that's called... Yeah. Shall I go through this? Because you've spoke, spoken a lot already. Um, the universe isn't only the supernal. 
defining concepts and the fallen, embodying them. When mages use their sight, they frequently see signs of corruption, warped or nonsensical symbols infecting the world. If the symbols of the supernal realms represents everything that's true, providing meaning to the platonic concepts that the fallen world embodies, then the abyss is everything that can't be. Every so often, parts of the fallen world become so overwhelmed by the poisonous anti-symbols of the abyss that impossibility breaks through to become real, an intruding paradox that damages the world around it. On rare occasions, these intrusions happen naturally. More often, mages overextend themselves or fall to a moment's weakness when casting spells, accidentally allowing something of the abyss through. Both are drops in the ocean, though compared to the lie. The lie is a curse, a spiritual affliction affecting every human soul. It closes the eyes of, their, of humanity to their potential, makes them ignore or rationalize away the, super, uh, the supernatural, and suppresses magic when their souls near it. Deep in his soul, every human knows he, that he is powerless and insignificant without the ability to affect the universe's laws. It's all pervasive, written into the fabric of reality, no matter how confident or successful the person, the lie is always there, worming away at her, telling her she's only human, as if, she, as if there's anything only about it. The lie is the combination of harsh supernal truths, the symbols of tyranny, oppression, slavery, and control, and are the paradoxal energies of the, of the abyss, making sleepers simultaneously vulnerable to those occult symbols' influence, while also masking their influence from them. When confronted with a supernal, whether it's rare natural manifestations or more often obvious magical effects caused by spells, the abyss in, sleep in a sleeper witness souls lulls them, forcing them to forget. Other supernatural occurrences don't provoke the abyss that obviously, but the lie still has a subtle effect, predisposing the inhabitants of the world of darkness to silence, putting the thought of the monsters among, among them out of their mind. Some people, especially those with minor magical talents themselves, are free of this uh, quiescence, but are still affected by the greater lie, still unable to see past the fallen world, but able to, to remember magic clearly. Mages describe these people as sleepwalkers, not sleepers, but not awakened. Mages see through the lie when they awaken. Each of the five paths reveals a facet of it. They're still human, still part of the fallen world, but they can look past it, guided by their paths. Often awakening is triggered by, the confrontation, by a confrontation with the lie, a crisis where the mage refuses to, the mage to be refuses to accept it. The lie is too elaborate and too finely targeted to be an accident according to the orders. There's a guiding intelligence behind it. Mages know that some symbols have a semblance of life. They summon... So uh, supernal entities pulling them from the supernal world into the fallen most uh, most are content to let mages come to them but the occult symbols bound up in the lie are evidence that something deep in the unseen supernal realms is actively trying to cripple humanity's ability to perceive beyond the fallen world more than trying it's succeeding what that enemy is depends upon the tale but the diamond and the seers use the greek word for rule from the outside this word is exarch. So, yeah, that's basically the mage setting in uh, kind of a nutshell. It kind of gives the over, I think gives 
the overwhelming kind of feeling of what the tone and, and what uh, what mages are fighting against. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's really um, one half a sentence to zone in on here. And Chig and Matt, I want you guys to pay special attention to this. The lie is a combination of harsh, supernal truths, the symbols of tyranny, oppression, slavery, and control. All right, that's what you guys in this game as a player characters are fighting against. Doesn't that make you feel like a goddamn hero? All the terrible things about this world are what you're fighting against, what you're trying to fix and solve. But mm. there's your hubris. The other interesting thing I was going to bring out, I think is a very powerful thing in this, uh, which I think really shows how this isn't Mage the Ascension. So in Mage the Ascension, paradox is because your view of what reality should be is coming up against the consensual reality, and thus a paradox occurs. Whereas really what paradox here is, is um, when we find it, is that the, the lie is a paradox in itself. It is the magic which is linked to tyranny, oppression, slavery, control, and all of those symbols all together stopping humans doing magic. But at the same time, it hides itself. The paradox there is that it is magic acting upon humanity in, a, in such a grand scale that it is all, but it also hides itself, and there is a there's a huge paradox in that in that way because it also stops other magic occurring. Yeah, this is a serious game, and you know what, Dave Brookshaw, just take my money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, other interesting things, I think, uh, Mike. If I I'm just going to try and find the post that's on my uh, uh, pocket here. Um, uh, I'm trying to find the right post because there's so many here. Um, is that they've also made some distinctions about what the fallen world is, what the supernal world is, and uh, and so forth. So the fallen world is what you can actually, what you exist within. And so the supernal world, the supernal realms, is lies simultaneously within our world. It is just the symbols that we cannot see. So it's the classic, you know, we're the goldfish in the bowl. We can see the shadows of waves above us, but we can't see the air that is making the ripples on the water. Um, and that is what the, the supernal world is, whereas the supernal realms are the places beyond that which, which power both the supernal world and the fallen world. So that's what Mage Sight essentially allows you to do, is, is to see past the fallen world and see the symbols, and see the connections, and see the magic in the world. Um, the and that also means you know see the meaning of the lie, see these these paradoxal symbols that are within our reality preventing magic. Um, the other thing is they've they've removed the distinction between uh, uh, between different types of magic. So you normally had um, uh, you had vulgar magical, you know, you had the different types of magic, and one would always cause paradox, and the other one didn't, uh, or didn't easily invoke paradox. They've removed that distinction. There's just magic, and depending upon your skilling magic, so depending upon the, 
the highest number of dots a spell requires and the number of dots you have in the ruling ruling arcana of that spell you get a number of reaches so reaches is a new term within mage second edition and so reaching is about trying to draw more draw more power into your spell and do more things so reaching is like rather than the spell affecting you it affects someone that you touch or it affects someone that you can see or if you've got sympathetic magic mixed in someone that you have a picture for but of course you can only reach so far and then as you reach further you will begin to to incur paradox dice and that creates a dice pool which is going to come into conflict with your wisdom and so obviously that's how paradox works so and of course you get more in that dice pool depending upon whether you've got witnesses to your magic or you know whether you're in a at a verge where magic is easier or you're at somewhere which is an abyssal verge where paradox is pretty much a given um so i kind of like that removal of the distinction between different types of magic just simply because again it pushes mage the awakening further away from mage the ascension we're dropping certain terminology which is a holdover from uh the old world of darkness um anything else we want to pick up on those ones mike uh no i'm not too familiar with the entire magic system of mage the awakening so i can't comment on it too much um essentially you know you have your gnosis which is your power pool um, and then, depending upon the type of magic you were doing, it would either rely on your on particular skills, if you're using rotes, or it would just rely on your arcanum. So, depending upon, so in other words, you would generally get a larger dice pool for doing a rote because you could draw in uh, more easily more dots because you'd be drawing from one or more skills uh, compared to doing uh, creative thaumaturgy. The it's the the main thing is that you've got these this idea of reach, which is almost kind of like a condition for for magic spells. Like you know, you've got so many reaches that you can have, and each one can be assigned a sort of con, a sort of condition, whether it's affecting you know, is a, a time based effect, or you're trying to change how long that is, or or so forth. Um, the other thing actually that's really important is they've removed what they call speed bumps in uh, the magic system. So what this means is that uh, before, uh, if, say, you were doing for, uh, magic that involved forces, you could only influence certain types of energies, certain types of forces, at a certain ranking of forces. They said, sod that. <laughs> that's gone. And similarly, uh, that's those sort of uh, speed bumps are removed for other arcana so if you've got the arcana of life you can affect any form of life you don't need to have rank 5 in life to start affecting you know or rank 3 to affect uh, multicellular life you know the question is more to do with how difficult not that you need to be a high enough rank in life um, so I think that makes I think they're trying to push magic to be that people try and use magic more. Um, I mean, that was always one of the things with Mage the Ascension. It was meant to be a game about magic, and also it, it was really hard to do magic. Um, uh, hmm. Let's see if I can bring this up. Uh, is this about... 
the other thing is they've really expanded upon and renamed some things. So uh, they've expanded upon the idea of magical tools and focuses. Well, they had magical tool, and they wanted to use avoid the term focus from from Mage the Ascension, especially with Mage 20 being out. So they've now got the term called Yantra. So Yantra is a mystic pattern when medita meditated upon, keys you into the divine. Uh, and an instrument is uh, is also a way of doing this, uh, but instrument is the term used by the free council. So again, these are, are things which allow you to create a symbolic correspondence with the supernal realms. And of course that means uh, elements of a yantra to a mage may not have the same symbolic meaning to another mage. So say a gun uh, may, may mean forces to one mage, but it may mean death to another. Things like that. And of course that means yantras and, and, and so forth. These are uh, these you can only you can only have a certain number of yantras depending upon your gnosis rating, uh, and then also you get specific ones depending upon which path you follow and which order you are a member of. So you get so if you're a member of the uh, adamantine arrow, um, yantras that involve you know martial arts and 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 the use of weapons come very easily to you. Um, so that hasn't really changed hugely. I think they've just better defined things, and a lot of this better of better defining things purely comes out of the fact that you've now got the God Machine Chronicles rule set, which has conditions and it has uh, a lot more about dice about how you add modifiers to a di to uh, dice pools. Um, I'm still trying to find the thing about reach. Uh, Mike, is there a particular post? Uh, another blog post that you want to pick up on? I mean, the interesting one that stuck out to me, of course, was the uh, Atlantis blog post yeah. uh, in particular. I don't know if we want to talk about that right now. Well, we can talk about it while I'm looking for uh, looking for another one. Um, but as I said, Atlantis has been downplayed uh, a great a great deal. Yes. Um, I, I, yeah, I guess you could say downplayed. So the the major difference is that well, first off, he starts off by saying that they're only probably going to use the word Atlantis like once in the book. Uh, and that's the fact that this uh, this mythical place in other society that may or may not have existed in the uh, in our world, uh, it's not going to be agreed upon by different cultures and sects. Uh, that's going to be an interesting thing to see in the, uh, the Dark Eras uh, section for Mage is when these Greek, Persian, and... Uh, Eurasian uh, mages all meet up is how their uh, understanding of the world doesn't really jive, doesn't link up to explain their uh, their own prehistory. Uh, so they uh, kind of change things around to make it uh, far less certain. There's no, um, there's not going to be a, a chapter in the book that says this is Atlantis, this is how everything worked. There's going to be an appendix which explains the. Uh, kind of controversial prehistories of mages um, and uh, the different uh, debates that go on. Because what we actually saw with Mage the Awakening as books were released is a sort of a deconstruction of mm -hmm. the universe itself. The uh, original core book kind of set things in stone, but uh, 
as things moved on, as more books were released, there was a uh, sort of uh, holes and leaks began to appear uh, in the dam, essentially. And you started to see that things don't really work out here. Uh, It doesn't really make sense. Why are we finding these ruins that we can't place in particular time periods and, and it should not exist in this space? Yeah, the the um, I think that started with like, was it uh, 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 was it? It's not secrets of the is it secrets of the rune temple or I can't remember uh, exactly. Yes, but that's that's the one that introduced various you know locations, and that's a really big important point actually. Is that uh, within Mage of the Awakening is that loads of these ancient sites that date back to the time before the world and and. Uh, they you can't date them time magic or or carbon dating means nothing you can't tie these things together and and uh the it means you can kind of almost get a very kind of uh lovecraftian feel to these ancient locations um i guess it more easily allows you to insert the god machine uh, the god machine into it like these are leftovers of the god machine in in from from before or maybe they're the leftovers of the world before the god machine screwed it all up and of course i'm sure dave brookshaw has some answer of how he would fit the god machine in i think he said he did so um uh, that'll be quite interesting um so the other important thing with the the atlantis myth is that they're very clear to deconstruct it because it's a very western myth based upon the ideas of how did you know like in south america oh well how do we explain how the the these ancient sites with these ziggurats and everything could be created by a bunch of uh, not white people savages so um you know there there's a lot of work in that that uh in that appendix to also kind of deconstruct it and and make atlantis less about kind of um appropriation of other people's cultures are more about uh, how weird the world actually is and how there are many different Atlantises and they're not all the same. Moving on, maybe, um, the one thing they've done to paths is also further expand them. Uh, and when I say expand them, expand their definition. So each path in, in uh, Mage of the Awakening is assigned to uh, Arcana, uh, two of the Arcana. And each Arcana... You get that they're, they're assigned one which is the higher one, which is more conceptual, and one which is a lower one. So, for example, a Master Cost Mage is uh, favored Arcanum are mind and space, because space is a construct of the mind. Uh, death and matter are linked with the Morris. Uh, prime and forces are linked with Obermoss. Uh, Acanthus is time and fate. And Thursus is spirit and life. What they've done to further kind of define those paths, so they're not just defined by the arcanum they're linked to, is to to a kind of assign almost kind of almost not not really a virtue and vice, but they're at least two two um, concepts that also bring them into it, that that create a paradox almost. So, for example, the acanthus are about choice and consequences. Masagos are about transgression and confrontation. The Moros are about permanence and transition. The Obermoss are about power and command. Uh, 
and thyrsus are about boundaries and intercession. So again, they're, they're really kind of just expanding these. And other than that, I don't think the paths have changed too much other than the moros. So in light of things like, uh, like um, Book of Spirits, which came out maybe halfway through uh, everything that's gone before uh, for New Order Darkness, and of course Book of the Dead for Geist and for World of Darkness in general, Changeling as well, uh, they've rebalanced a few things. So particularly for the Moros, they generally were played... Uh, they, it was seen within the community that were generally played as either being alchemists or necromancers, not both. And so they really try to push that path more towards being alchemists than necromancers. They still dabble with ghosts, and of course their powers and, and death magic as an arcanum has also been re-examined in light of the the, the excellent material in Book of the Dead. Um, but there's been a bit of rebalancing there, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think... Uh, I don't think the Mars should just be de facto necromancers. Um, that would be quite boring. Um, because any path can be, any, any mage from any path can be a necromancer. It's just kind of the flavor and their, their approach to manipulating the dead. Um, the other interesting thing uh, they, that has been, uh, that has been looked, uh, spoiled a little bit is other well some of the other realms so of course another book which came out I can't remember how long ago but it wasn't too again kind of about that halfway point in uh, World in New World of Darkness uh, releases was um, Inferno which covers the lower depths so the lower depths now is for mage means anything that is like the for, like the fallen world, but is also lacking. Note the keyword here: lacking a certain part uh, is lacking the influence of of one or more of the arcana. So that's quite interesting, I find. So, so within the places that have now been de deemed lower depths are the inferno which we know contains de demons, which are not the same as demons from Demon the Descent, and are not the same as uh, Pandorans or Kushalim, which are also, well, they're not even demons, they're, they're angels, which are different to the angels from uh, Demon the Descent. But other, other places that are now deemed lower depths are wherever the Strix come from and the Duat of Mummy the Curse. So I found that really interesting that these are now deemed these are we're properly deemed these are properly within the uh the World of Darkness cosmology. These are lower depths. That also means the duat being a lower depth is not part of the underworld, because the underworld is is the great below. And uh and the very bottom of the underworld and you know the domains are not lower depths. They are they are places so deep that you come across Chthonian entities that were never born. So it's interesting to have the duat as one of the lower depths. And it's interesting to say that the lower depths lack one of one or more of the arcana, because that kind of then explains why mummies have to go looking for relics to send uh, Sekem into the duat. So is the duat lacking in prime? 
Hmm. So yeah, that's quite interesting. Uh, ooh, what else? Um, Chris, Chris, you're, you're breaking up. You're talking about the lower depths, but you're breaking up on my recording. Am I? Uh, you're, you're starting to come back. You're starting to come back. All right. Uh, okay. Um, I I'm do like to... that uh, because they're building it from the ground up, basically, and they know that there's going to be multiple supernatural subspecies out there that they are tying it all together a bit more um, cohesively than the old world of darkness. I do it's, like that. It is really, really uh, cohesive. Um, I think I think that's just um, it's it's just a case of the fact that they've had they had a good almost ten years of of running all these games off the same core system, and mm-hmm. that core system is the core system for the all these second editions. And Mage right. now has all of the other games to go. Well, you're a perfect perfect antagonist. Let's. Uh, how do we incorporate you into uh, Mage: The Awakening? Um, and it was. It's always been that. It was always easy to introduce other antagonists into Mage that weren't mages. You know, ghosts were easy, demons are easy. But to and and it's quite clear. And it was pretty much said in a few, in, in without saying too much that. Uh, a team up between some mages and some demons would be is completely playable and would be very very interesting because you've got one group which the demons have their powers which literally make use of the fundamental arcane supernatural elements of the world that people can't see while mages are more like hackers and just do what they want, and hopefully the world doesn't smack them on the ass. Um, so that's really cool. Uh, there's a whole, there's a post up that's that goes through uh, each of the type of antagonistic type of mages. So the mad, the banishers, uh, liches, and reapers, and of course a bit on the Tremere and Scalesti. Uh, so they're all coming back. We learn that the Scalesti. Apparently, uh, make use of yantras that have been corrupted by an anti-watchtower called a ziggurat, which is new news to me. Um, maybe I didn't read that in Left-Handed Paths. Left-Handed Paths was uh, one of the books towards the end of the release. So again, um, something that, they, that David Brookshaw has said with regard to a lot of these is that they don't have enough room in the core book to go through a lot of this stuff, understandably so. But because the Left-Handed Path book was one of the last source books to come out for the last for the previous edition, it mostly won't be the fir- one of the first things to be revised. But because that material in there was doing so much of a retcon to Mage, and thus is core to the new edition, it means that Dave Brookshaw is just going to put out a errata for how you chain, how you can make use of those antagonists under the new rule set. So, Dave Brookshaw is a is a god <laughs> for doing that. For just going, yeah, here's how you make him playable. Use the old book for now. Um, yes, that's quite exciting. 
Um, I'm still trying to find the post on, on the actual how spells work, so I can just go through that. I was going to say about paradox then. So this is a really big thing, uh, so I can expand upon. So the as I said, there's no there's no concept of coincidental and vulgar magic, uh, as you had in Ascension. There's no there's no uh, concept of like covert or vulgar magic. Uh, so no spell automatically risks paradox. I think that's a really important thing in this. Then, is that magic? By saying no spell automatically risks paradox, that's basically telling you, both in the setting fluff and and mechanically, that the world of darkness should have magic in it. Mages should be doing magic, and it's that. It is their their need to reach across the abyss to the supernal realms to further increase the ability of their spells, which risks paradox because that reaching is what draws the abyss in. So it's kind of like you know you, you're 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 trying to um, it's like having a layer of oil, a layer of water, and then something really denser than water and trying to put a, uh, a small tube through those layers to get to the really dense stuff and bring it into the into the the upper layer but at the same time you're going to draw some water through and you're going to screw up whatever you're doing that's kind of to me what what magic kind of is in mage the ascension um and again, you know, depending upon how many sleepers are there, you know, the paradox dice pool will get a nine again or an eight again on the dice. Uh, and you can contain paradox by, uh, you know, using your wisdom score to cancel it out. Again, wisdom is the uh, is similar to integrity or, or or humanity for vampires. Integrity being for mortals. Um, but that also means that for w the wisdom score is about a mage's willingness to cause hub to to, to uh, perform acts that cause hubris. That means then that petty theft, or theft, or even murder, will not necessarily mean a mage's wisdom score goes down, which is quite interesting. <laughs> And again, I think that's really important because it's about pushing these systems further away from the classic World of Darkness Victorian morality system, where doing so, a bad thing makes you mad. So they're divorcing the um, hubris system from that hierarchy of sins. Does using a spell to commit murder still count as a hubristic act, or...? It depends. It gives an example that using a spell in, for planned murder is is not as doesn't call as much hubris as using a spell in a moment of panic to murder someone. Because one is about pure control, and the other one is not. Okay. It's and there's definitely there's a whole blog posts on this to go into it more and obviously I'm giving the the the, uh, the abridged kind of notes on it but it is different and they say that it's that makes wisdom more similar to 
uh, edition vampires humanity than say how uh, uh, integrity will be more similar to say uh, harmony for werewolves in Forsaken so um, again that's quite interesting because again humanity in vampires is not about whether you're doing bad things or not it's whether you're doing the right things to appear human and whether you give a shit whether you, you appear human or not um, and mage I think is in the same is in the same thing so it's about whether you give a damn or not that the magic you're doing is is being seen by others hurting others how it hurts others and whether it incurs paradox or not hmm well, I think they also I think they also made some changes to harmony as well because that was a common complaint in among at least first edition where all the forsaken players is that harmony really wasn't how in tune your wolf and human were it's how wolfy are you yeah 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 exactly i think I think um what you'll definitely see in i think Stu Wilson said this ages ago when I read it harmony will whereas like whereas humanity. It, the the high humanity you are, the more human you look. The low humanity you are, the more vampiric you are. Uh, integrity is about whether how is really a measure of of post traumatic stress. Harmony for second edition werewolf will be more about the higher it is, the more human. The lower it is, more werewolf. And so actually, the the, the best place to be is mostly in the middle. And I can see that being the same sort of that that being the basis for how Geist the Sin Eaters will be, because you have synergy, and that's about how in balance the human soul is with the Geist that's coexisting in your body. And uh, and I can see that also being the basis for Changeling, which was uh, clarity, because obviously if you have high clarity you have a very difficult time interacting with with uh the hedge and and you know uh the weird and anything to do with being a changeling whereas if you had very low clarity you don't see the real world you see the magical fairy tale world that's that and the symbolism and the connections of it uh within and the you're real also world rather dangerous for regular people to be around yeah, because you're also quite freaking insane by regular people's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, estimations. So I think I think that's really I think that's the core thing here is that they're not trying to do a, a, a one a one size fits all way of using this ranking, and that's quite evident now in Mage, and is evident in how they're approaching Werewolf. And I like that. It's good. I mean, I like the idea. Like a mage, a mage has a very different view on reality. So certain crimes and and certain actions to them are, are, are not hubristic because because they're not causing paradox and they're not causing the world to fall apart in certain ways. And in fact, actually, maybe work towards their how the world should be um yeah oh do we have any other um things to bring up mike 
No, I think that's a really good overview of what we've had going on with uh, Mage 2nd Edition. And uh, I think we should head over and uh, maybe discuss some mailbags. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we did actually get uh, two nice questions for this episode from uh, Michael Jacobson, which uh, I think we should go over right now. So, keeping in the uh, new World of Darkness vein, uh, Michael Jacobson asks, How would mages interact with the God Machine? And this is a pretty big and niggling question for a lot of people when it comes to the uh, newer material. Um, I think I hinted at that. I think we've hinted at this a few times. Um, so the God Machine and the supernatural abilities of of, uh, of the God Machine's angels and thus the supernatural abilities of demons all rely on uh, what can be described as arcane science. Um, so what that means is that the God Machine relies on patterns and it relies on things being brought together to create an effect. And these things don't make sense to the common person, yet they are, they are, uh, they are mystical and supernatural paranormal events and powers which are which do not invoke paradox and are part of our world the question then for mages is is why is that and how can we use them because a mage's magic when a mage uses its uh, their tools and uses their their um Yantras and Magios and Mudras and all these things that allow them to do magic and to do all that symbolism that allows them to draw down the supernal powers into a, into the fun realm. A a normal a normal magician, a normal magic user, I say magician, but you you know hedge ma uh, magician, even if he uses those symbols of power, will not get a magical effect because there is such a huge difference between fallen magic and supernal magic awakened magic and in a similar way there is a very big difference between awakened magic and embeds and exploits and what angels are capable of doing and what the god machine is doing so there's a lot there there's mostly some crazy symbolism that is to do with how the god machine is part of our world for all we know, the God Machine could be a creation of the Exarchs. It could be the mechanism which powers the Abyss. Um, that's a scary thought. You know, all these actions and everything, it's just so the, the God Machine can fuel the sleeping curse. Um, and obviously demons present a very interesting and fun player character type for uh, a cabal of mages to interact with, or a very dangerous uh, foe for the Seers of the Exarch to fight against, uh, because Seers of the Exarch in the Mage 2nd Mage edition, their order will be presented at the front of the book with all the others, so they are completely playable. They are so kind of like the technocracy in that sense, that you can definitely play them and be the kind of walk on the dark side a little. Hmm. Any ideas a, with Mage and God change. Machine? That's a big change for this year. It is a big change. 
because when I read Fears the when I read uh, the Fears of the Throne book, it was just like, oh my god, they make the Technocracy look like a bunch of puppies. They make they make yeah. the Technocracy look like friendly guys. Because at least the point is again, I just want to reinforce: at least the Technocracy are working towards, in their mind, the benefit of the to the benefit of humanity. Right? The Fears of the Exxon right. don't give a damn about humanity. They want to keep humanity under their heel. They want to use, they want to divide humanity using various cultures and religions and have humanity fight amongst themselves. They want different countries to be fighting amongst themselves. But there are some, some of the experts, like the eye, wants to watch all of humanity, Big Brother style, so they're all under, under the thumb all at once. And someone, and I can't remember which other one wants like a, 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 kind of full control of humanity. And then there's the sixth exarch, the gate, who may be the one that's tied to the, the very nature of the abyss. Um, and ultimately, any member of the Seers of the Throne wants to be granted by the exarchs the ability to ascend the fallen world and live in the supernal realm. And if that means you know, selling out humanity and selling out all other mages, even your fellow seers, then so be it. So comparatively, you know, the technocracy are really, really nice. Yep, yep. Any cool. ideas on uh, mage and god machine then? Or uh, is that it for that question? Yeah, I think that's it. I'm not really the guy to ask uh, in that regard, unfortunately. But we do have one more mailbag question. And Matt, I need you to, uh, to, to, to wake up here because it's targeted at you. All right, then. Okay. What are your ideas on bringing the Lost Tribes and Lost Pharah into a Werewolf the Apocalypse game? Well, um, I think that that was actually a common theme towards the end of the line that... Whereas, like, in Werewolf Revised, there was a very strong, like, undercurrent of redemption that the way that the werewolves would win the war is by somehow bringing those tribes back. Hmm. And they actually wrote a supplement that had some ideas on how to do that called Past Lives. That was, it, it was, like, sort of like a combination supplement slash adventure path thing where your tr your pack like actually like traveled back in time sort of to a place where the lost tribes and breeds actually were still around and there were rules for like meeting the lost tribes and the lost changing breeds and learning gifts from them and like that sort of thing and sort of reconciling with the uh the tribal spirits and incarnate of those lost breeds and trying to make up for some of that. But there were some ideas for how to bring them back for real. Um, for instance, um, as far as the white howlers, um, there's always that thing about like, you know, a pure breed five black spiral looks like a white howler. So in theory, that sort of still exists. 
and their tribal incarnate lion still is still around. He's in Griffin's brood. So in theory, if you were somehow able to purify a bunch of black spirals and get them back under lion, then you've got the white howlers. Um, the bunyip, again, um, their tribal totem Nyaglod. I'm not precisely sure how to pronounce that name. He's still around in the Umbra and very angry. Um, and in theory, if you could somehow get, you know, a breeding pair of thylacines from maybe the Deep Umbra or something, you might be able to bring the uh, Bunyip back. The Octana, uh, the not the Octana, um, Crotan. Um, turtles still around, and a lot of the Crotan kinfolk were absorbed into the Wendigo and Octena. And I'm fairly certain that, you know, knowing the way the Octena are, there might just be, you know, a small, you know, sect of pure braid of, like, still breeding through Croatan hidden somewhere in one of their, you know, little grottos waiting for the end times to come around so they can get pulled, so they can get pulled back into the fight. Yeah, actually, that's kind of an interesting point about the Croatan, because really, you know, werewolves, they can choose what tribe they want to be part of, so it's very easy for the uh, Wendigo or the Uctena, whoever they got really absorbed into, uh, to take just some of their uh, tribal practices and kind of integrate them uh, along with the kinfolk that they uh, that they grabbed. Right, because, I mean, it's in, in that case, it wasn't like, that was more of like, every living member of the tribe sacrificed them all at once so that that kind of that link to the tribal incarnate was severed like that's sort of what how that was going but the fact that those kinfolk are still alive and were protected and the octena are masters of mystic ritual i'm pretty sure if they wanted the croatan to still be around they are still around um now, as far as the uh, lost fera, the lost breeds, that gets a little bit more interesting because two of them were lost during the War of Rage, and one of them was lost for a very, for a fairly good reason because they were basically completely incompatible with, like, continuing to exist more or less. The uh, apis, the uh, were aurochs, like they were basically so hubristic they could not understand that you know the the methods that they needed to take to survive because they were like the uh tribe of like breeders like they chose like good breeding partners for everyone and then like it's it was a really weird niche for them to fill but like they still sort of like did that and then like the war of rage happened they're like what the werewolves aren't listening to us about who they should breed with anymore let's go fight the werewolves and that really didn't work out all that well for them the other ones are the grander the uh werebores who were all about um cleansing the corruption from the plate from places on earth and keeping gaia pure um with them, that was more of like, like the werewolf, like they just kind of got caught in the cross-fighting between the Garou and the other Farah. And so they pro they have, and they do have more of a place, especially now, like 
bringing the grandeur back would be a great boon for the werewolves just because of all of the corruption that is currently afflicting Gaia. And then the last breed of lost Pharah is the... I am going to butcher this name. The Kamazots, I believe. Good job. Awesome. Nice. The uh, werebats, who actually died relatively recently, like as early as like 1890 or something around in there. Um, like, there was the whole, like, you know, the lot, the, the death scream of the last Kamazots echoed through the Umbra kind of thing, but they could still theoretically be around. But there's also, you know, it just the generic quest line of, you know, heading off into the deep Umbra, because, you know, there might be an Umbra realm somewhere where some kinfolk are still around, or where those tribes retreated to to try and survive and last beyond the War of Rage, but then they lost their way back, because the Umbra just kind of does that. Like, so there could be, you know, a quest of a tribe to go, like, venture into the Deep Umbra and find the lost breeds and the lost tribes and bring them back into the physical world to assist in the final nights. And And the new... Change Your Breeds 20 book actually has stats for all of them, so there you go. Nice. Nice. Alright, cool. Is that it, Matt? Um, well, I mean, that's, like like I said, most of the time, like, it's, in theory, you could just have them back, like, if you wanted them to just be in a werewolf game. Because, I mean, the Kamazots kind of exist in a nice niche where they are basically the Korax in a place where there are no crows or where there are no ravens. Hmm. Okay. So like that's a nice niche. The Grandur are, you know, pretty good because I mean, while the Garal are doing what they normally do, they're doing it because the Grandur aren't there. So they still have a place. The Apis, I'm not really sure where they would fit into a modern world of darkness game because, but I mean you could bring them back and they are you know <laughs> basically were minotaurs so that's kind uh, of they would fit into something. the quiverful movement i believe i have no idea what that is oh well then my joke fell very flat never mind <laughs> <laughs> all right i mean the only thing i'm gonna say about uh putting in these lost tribes and stuff is that i really see in the uh typical uh, metaplot of the world of darkness if you're gonna do something with them you basically have two options either it's got to be very focal to the chronicle um you know your chronicle is centered around trying to bring back the uh Kamazots. or it could just be sort of an offhand comment this works i think pretty well with um maybe less experienced players because they'll be like oh there's this pharaoh called the apis that this guy knows oh that's cool and then like weeks or months later they're reading around like wait those guys are all supposed to be dead how did he know one and that's sort of an offhand comment i think could be uh pretty well received as well so that's just uh my two cents right there right like i mean like what i was saying is that bringing them back like should like that would be something that would be like a grand quest of a silver pack like this is a massive world changing thing that you can do and would be a major blow struck for the guru in the war for the apocalypse. Like they're 
I think they're called like seeking packs, and they're actually like a thing of like. And there's a Children of Gaia um, camp called Seekers of the Lost. That that is what they do is they try they search for signs of the lost Pharaoh and try and figure out ways of bringing them back. Not always successfully in one very blatant case, but I won't go over that right now. But like there is a there is some precedent for this kind of thing being in a werewolf game, and I totally support it because that's the kind of like that's the kind of epic quest that feel, that's really nice to have in a werewolf chronicle. Cool. So I think that's it for the mailbag, and uh, let's just move on out to uh, closing remarks. Uh, Matt, do you have a a Twitter account if people want to follow you and uh, see what's going on? Uh, yeah, I do. It's um at Irmrith, that I R M R I T H. All right, sweet, sweet, cool. And uh, we are, of course, Darker Days Radio. Uh, you can check us out at darker-days.org or subscribe to us through iTunes. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, one of the best ways is sending us an email over to darkerdaysradio at gmail.com or uh, dropping us a line either on Facebook at facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio or at our Google Plus community where... Uh, you can just find us by searching for Darker Days Radio on Google Plus or checking out the link in the show notes. All right, we're good, guys. Uh, any, anything else? Anything else before we go? Um, I will plug the Fading Suns blog because it's finally up. So that's fadingsuns.fredonianlabs.cc. Easiest way to find it. Just go on the uh, go on Facebook and find the Fading Suns official. Uh, well. Fading Suns community, and you can from there get to the blog, which is known as Where Shadows Lie. Um, and there's information about uh, Gen, about you know, getting play people to run games at Gen Con, uh, in particular for Noble Armada Third Edition. And there's blog posts on there, and uh, hopefully at some point soon there will be some blog posts by myself regarding technology in that setting. Um, yeah, and of course there's our own blog, which um, yeah, if someone's got something interesting they want to have post up on the Dark Days blog, uh, by all means they can always send it in and we'll uh, be able to sit up and chuck it up on there, because it's easier than doing the uh, magazine, I think, right now. The magazine requires a bit more effort. Indeed, indeed. Alright, sweet. Alright, hey guys, great episode and uh, everyone, thanks for listening. See ya. Bye, Matt. Bye. All right, guys, give me a second to uh, just bring up my little notes here. Yeah, you didn't share those little notes with anybody else. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, well, they're my (laughs) notes, okay? Jerk. Guys, come up with your own ideas, okay? Gosh. Just, just brainstorm just as I'm talking. notes and then come up with something good. Oh, okay. Well, listen to my notes and then come up with something good. Don't worry, Chig. I, I got some stuff in here for you. I think this is uh, a little conversation that's going to go at the uh, end of the episode here. I was just talking <laughs> about this. All right. Anyway, guys, back back to recording. Um, yeah, that's my idea there. <laughs> Guys, keep talking. I'm eating a cookie. <laughs> um...